Hello, welcome to Graphic Policy Radio. This is your host, Elon Levin, and this is a comics podcast. Actually, today is a comics history podcast, specifically because we are going to be talking with a good friend of mine and frequent guest on the show, frequent guest collaborator, Stephen Adewell. Stephen writes about the intersection of history, politics, and pop culture in The People's History of the Marvel Universe for Graphic Policy and at racefortheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheirontheironthe
uh, back in the day. Um, you know, before it, uh, you know, became part of the House of Mouse. Mm-hmm. And it's always been there. I mean, you show that from your very, very first one, which is about some of the political content, not in the Captain America issue where he punches Hitler, but in fact, in an even, er- you know, in, an, in, in, a, in another one. Um, the, the very yeah. next one from the one that he, he punches Hitler. Yeah, I... Yes. I wanted to write about um, just because I I was had decided to read all of the Captain America comics, um, starting from you know the the World War Two ones, um, which were kind of interesting because it was seeing the the comics medium uh, in its infancy where it really hadn't like emerged from. Um, the world of pulp magazines, like a lot of mm-hmm. um, early Captain America comics had like multiple pages devoted to, to short stories um, with no images. It was just, you know, literally like a pulp magazine story uh, featuring Captain America interspersed with comics. Um mm-hmm. And then later, as you know, the the series went on, it, it became solely comics, as you know, the medium kind of got a sense of itself. Um, so I I wanted to write about this one issue where Captain America goes after a bunch of uh, corporate income tax evaders because I, I want to sort of say, you know, it, it's. You know, we all, like, know the story, or not we all, but, like, comics political nerds know the story of Jack Kirby as this, like, devoted anti-fascist. Someone who was always ready to to punch a Nazi. Um, But I wanted to sort of put it out there that it was like, well, you know, that... That attitude doesn't exist without some connection to domestic politics as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. And, like, I love the nerdiness that it's tax policy specifically even, you know? Like, yeah. This is, like, the rich people messing yeah, and it's Yeah, and it's got, you know, it, it, it's got the usual sort of comic book elements. Like, they're they're covering up their income tax evasion by sending Tibetan mummies to, like, murder people. Um, I mean, you know, Jeff, I could just... uh, Elon Musk is, like, moments away from taking that attempt, so... Mm. The series started there, and then, um, you know, I've been an X-Men fan, you know, practically my whole life, and I was going through the the X-Men DVDs as well, and wanted, you know, just to initially um, highlight weird political oddities like, um, you know, why it was that, like, Pierre Trudeau and Alpha Flight show up as antagonists um, so often in the X-Men uh, and what that has to do with uh, John Byrne. Um, or, I love how, like, in the Marvel Universe, Canada is always evil. And, of course, yeah. in the real world, like, 
I think a lot of Americans on the left have completely whitewashed understanding of Canadian politics, which, of course, are full of genocide against the indigenous people that continues to this day, as well as many other things. But like, it's so it is still sort of kind of hilarious that Marvel just situates so much of the evil in Canada. And partially, I think it's because when you're an American company, it's easier to say all that evil shit is in Canada. But it's also yeah. because of John Byrne being Canadian. <laughs> yeah, and, and hitting Pierre Trudeau. Um, so, um, you know, he he wasn't exactly subtle. Like, he, he straight up has, you know, Death Star uh, goons, the, the guys with the, like, scalloped helmets um, operating Alpha Flight uh, bases. Um, and, you know... Pierre Trudeau looking really weirdly caricatured. Um, so it started with just like, oh, let me let me find like weird political stuff. Um, and pretty soon I I got kind of more ambitious with it, um, and wanted to write about um, the mutant metaphor and the way that the mutant metaphor has changed over time. Um, and, um, you know, partly because I wanted to sort of, uh, defend the reputation of the original Silver Aged X-Men, uh, because they often get a bad rap as, you know, mm-hmm. substandard Marvel comics, you know, and, l- and let's be honest, they're, they're not the best that Marvel was putting out, um, you know, there's a reason that, you know, people credit um, Chris Claremont with, you know, reinventing the X-Men as opposed to just writing the X-Men. Um, but there there was, like, thought there. There was, mm-hmm. you know, and it was a very different kind of Marvel metaphor than the, uh, mutant metaphor, than the one that Chris Claremont uh, ended up running with. So I wanted to write about, you know, the the different ways in which a kind of 1950s, um, early 60s political sci-fi, um, you know, in, in the tradition of like the Twilight Zone, handled mm-hmm. the mutant metaphor, um, where, you know... It's it's still about bigotry, but it's about the the sort of the bigotry and paranoia of the mob, you know. And it could mm-hmm. just as easily be about like McCarthyism or suburban conformity as mm-hmm. you know about race. And you know this, um, of course, you know the people's history of the Marvel universe was like strongly influenced by uh, the time that I was invited on Graphic Policy Radio for the roundtable on the whole, um, you know, Magneto is Malcolm X, uh, Professor X is Martin Luther King. The big debunking roundtable. Like, I would say... Yeah, the debunking roundtable. For for listeners who haven't checked it out, a million years ago, we hosted a big roundtable of critics explaining why people trying to say that Magneto was like Malcolm X and Professor Xavier is like MLK Jr. It was like 
just completely ahistoric and wrong and also kind of offensive. My shortest possible explanation of this is that it doesn't recognize the radicalism of Dr. Martin Luther King, which is far more than anything you'd see Charles do in the comics for decades. And it's insulting to the actual political philosophy and organizing strategies of Malcolm X, who certainly never even wanted to steal warheads or write his name in the sky with metal fragments or any of the ridiculous cartoon villainy that we had Magneto doing in those days. Um, And I felt like, because, you know, when I when I was a kid first getting into comics, when I was like 13 and 12, I, you know, I like was really attracted to the X-Men story in part because of those political metaphors. But my understanding of that, those politics and the history was that of a junior high student. And I would hope that someone who was no longer a junior high student would like understand the ways in which those are not good parallels. And so we felt like it was important to like get folks to stop talking out of their asses. I'm, I'm sorry, I have a hard time not being emotional about it because it feels like people have been trying to raise awareness about this for years at this point. Um, so I recommend folks go back, listen to the episode. My brother, bless his soul, um, went through and helped me clean up some of the audio from it. So um, there is a version of it with cleaned up audio that maybe got posted about a year or two ago. And um, I think is a lot more listenable uh, as we've improved our production quality. But um, I do think it's a really fundamental thing for folks who are thinking about comics and politics to understand, um, which is not to say that the X-Men isn't extremely political from top to bottom. You know, mutants, especially in the the Silver Age, mutants pass. Um, you know, they're, it, they're, the O5 are all white teenagers who live in the suburbs. Yeah. And, and also just simply pointing out to people that, like, MLK was radical and Professor X is, like, works with the military and Malcolm well, works actually, with the FBI, no less <laughs> works with the FBI. Yeah, like, yeah, you know, like, say what FBI you like. Killed MLK. Yeah. You know, say what you like about, you know, I, I don't care how radical you are and how, you know, down you, you might be about Martin Luther King's particular political agenda and strategies, but like he was never under any illusions that the FBI wanted him dead. Um, yeah. And he, he did not collaborate with the FBI. Um, and like, and also just people not understanding who Malcolm was and they just sort of exist in their mind as like an angry black man who had a, you know, who had a point but was angry and dangerous and therefore is Magneto. And it's like, no, that's not what's happening. Uh, please stop. So I don't, yeah, don't want to rehash the whole thing, but go listen to it, guys. Yeah. Anyway, so... That podcast especially got me off on a tangent about writing writing about the transformation of Magneto uh, and what the original Silver Age Magneto was like and how Magneto was transformed by Chris Claremont into um, first, uh, you know, a villain protagonist um you know uh, along the lines of you know i i compare him to uh to milton satan um 
Mm-hmm. Um, and then later into like an outright good guy. Like he, he becomes, you know, the headmaster of the Xavier school and the leader of the X-Men. Um, and so I, I wanted to sort of trace that transformation. Uh, and I did that in uh, a series of uh, people's history of the Marvel Universe. Uh, one titled This Man Magneto and the other one titled... Um, Magneto versus Eric Lenscher. Yeah, they're really fabulous. I mean, I I don't see people really delving in in great detail into the Silver Age comics in general as much in the sort of podcast spaces. So I, you know, I look, totally shout out to um, Marvel by the Month who are doing really cool stuff, and I was really happy to be a guest on their show. But um. You know, I think if folks want to have a perspective on what works with those comics and what doesn't and what they're trying at, like your essays on this are a great place to sort of get your head oriented to them itself. Yeah, Um, because, you know, Silver Age Magneto is not a great villain. Um, You know, he is or at least he's not. He's not a cool villain. He's not like a villain right. that you respect. Um, he's, you know, I refer to him as kind of a snidely whiplash um, mm-hmm. kind of villain. Like his his politics and you know what he's after is really kind of vague. Like he doesn't actually talk about mutants and humans, except in in rather vague terms of like. You know, humans are, are are bad, mutants should take over. Um, but he's like, he's a bully. He, you know, habitually beats the shit out of Toad to make himself feel better. He gaslights uh, the Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver. Um, you know, he constantly throws people under the bus to save himself. He's he runs away mm-hmm. from conflict a lot. It's he you know, he sort of has that kind of slightly cowardly um you know, aspect to him. And you know, worst of all uh you know, and this is in the the storyline where um uh, Magneto takes over the island nation of Santo Marco, um, which is not at all described like, you know, or drawn like a uh, Caribbean island, um, but rather a European uh, country. Mm-hmm. And, like, immediately he takes over with an uh, an illusionary army of, you know, goose-stepping, Stahlhelm-wearing Nazis wearing armbands with M in place of H for Hitler. It's like, yeah. you know, and all of that is in the drawing. So that's Jack Kirby, right, making yeah. a very pointed political statement. Um you know and and this is in a marvel comics in which you know you still have active nazis running around 
you know, trying to continue World War Two, you know, in, in the form of Hydra. Um, mm. So, you know, Jack Kirby is not uh, pulling any punches. So that makes him a pretty despicable figure. I mean, the, the one thing that you could sort of say he has going for him is, like, the costume, the color design. Oh, is, yeah, the helmet. The Kirby helmets, you know. Yeah, that's pretty iconic. Um, you know, he does have... And, and the other thing is that, like, Stan Lee doesn't understand magnetism. So he could just do, like, wacky <laughs> shit with his powers. Like, yeah. you know, bouncing people around or tying them up uh, with magnetic rays or skywriting in cursive or, like, you know, mind-controlling people through, uh, you know, mesmeric animal magnetism. So there was that. Right, but that was pretty um, thin stuff to work with. Uh, And it's one of the reasons, I think, that during the Silver Age, they kind of keep trying to get rid of Magneto almost as much as they try to get rid of Professor Xavier. Like, Professor Xavier in the Silver Age is constantly (laughs) faking his death. Um, and that's being done by the, the writers because like Professor X, especially in the Silver Age version is too powerful. He just solves storytelling problems by existing. I mean, of course, that's partially because he keeps telling Jean Grey what to do, even though Jean Grey is perfectly capable of doing it himself. So like Stan kind of brought it on himself by like, yeah, undermining Jean in the storylines that Jack was drawing, but, but continue, continue. In, in, in the excellent, um, uh, Kirby without words, uh, coverage of this, uh, I really recommend that people check that out. Um, you know, so Magneto kept getting, you know, similarly, Magneto kept getting marooned on alien planets, never to return, only then to return, like, 10 or 15 issues later because they'd run out of villains and they they needed the standby villain. Um, or getting de-aged into a baby. You know, they <laughs> kept trying to write him out. Wait, um, I'm sorry, just real quick. Sorry, so Magneto gets de-aged to a baby and it's not by Chris Claremont. No. Um, you know, God surprisingly. Um, God given, bless. Given... Claremont's um, interest in in the subject of of de-aging and, like, (laughs) radical body modification. Um, So, I then, you know, picked up uh, from there with the Claremont run and was sort of trying to figure out, like, how did Claremont rebuild Magneto? Um, Because he sort of takes, like the the bare minimum framework like he takes the costume and he takes magneto being the the first uh villain of the x-men and the idea that like magneto believes in this you know 
coming war between mutants and humans. And that's a pretty brief sketch. And then mm. he just kind of adds a whole bunch of new stuff that was never there before on top of that and really creates a new character. Um, so, you know, the first thing he does is he sort of jettisons the, like, the, the, the physical cowardice. And, you know, one of the things that you see is that, like, from especially, um, John Byrne, but also, uh, you know, John Romita Jr. and, and some other artists, Magneto is drawn with more physical power to him. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the old Magneto walked around in kind of a baggy onesie. He was not uh, <laughs> particularly sort of, you know, Marvel House-style muscular. And you know, like, all of a sudden he becomes ripped. Uh, enough to the point where, like, you believe it when he goes toe-to-toe and tries to just out-punch Colossus in metal form. Um, you know, and that, you know, it's, it's a rather superficial thing, but it makes for a more impressive villain. Um, and, you know, Claremont shows Magneto beating the X-Men instead of running away. Um, and being able, you know, one of the, the few characters to ever go, uh, toe-to-toe with the Phoenix and like, not be utterly destroyed. You know, he's he's shown as uh, a villain of power. Um, the the next thing is the, like, this emphasis on, on willpower and, um, you know, that Magneto is, like, incredibly strongly committed to a cause. Um, you know, which had only really been, um, gestured at in the Silver Age. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, then of course, you know, the, the big thing was making Magneto, um, Jewish and a Holocaust survivor, uh, and, you know, this is where uh, Cerebrocast with uh, Spencer Ackerman did a, a great job mm-hmm. um, unpacking, um, you know, the the political meanings of um, this aspect of his character. But what I thought, you know, what t- to me sort of worked so well about that revelation, you know, and it is something where, like, you know, Magneto just sort of announces in X-Men 150 that this is the case, um, you know, that he he grew up in Auschwitz. Yeah. Um, and and you can sort of see, like, Claremont becoming more comfortable over time about, like, having characters be explicitly Jewish, which, like, had been subtextual for so many things before. Yeah, and that was sort of something that I I thought was interesting that I've written about a few times, which is the sort of, like, generational turnover within Marvel, mm-hmm. which, you know, um, and and I thought, uh, you know, Abram Reisman's uh, biography of Stan Lee 
uh, was really kind of good on this point that like for Jewish creators of a certain generation, the first generation into comics, like Jack Kirby, Stan Lee, you know, they existed in a paradigm where like you changed your last name to be a little bit more acceptable to the Goyim. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you didn't, you know, some assimilated more than others, uh, and I really recommend, like, read True Believer. Um, so good. Listen to the episode where I interviewed uh, Abe Reisman about it on my podcast. <laughs> yes, one of my favorites. Um, Thank you. But, you know, Kirby, who, you know, always, I think, kind of has a, a longing to, like, bring his world of, like, the Jewish lurey side into his comics. Mm-hmm. Uh, nevertheless, always sort of kept things, you know, in the main Marvel comics, safely subtextual. Um, and, you know, didn't go beyond that. And, you know, Claremont is likewise, uh, you know, a New York Jewish creator. But he's from the next generation. Like, he grows up on Long Island in the 50s. Um, And he's more comfortable being, you know, moving beyond the subtextual and being explicit about Judaism and about the Holocaust. Uh, And I thought there was something interesting to that story of kind of generational succession within this sort of uh, world of the X-Office and Marvel Comics more generally. Yeah, yeah. No, it's... The way that the real world history plays out in the choices that creators make in their work is something that I think is really under-examined by a lot of places that I'm seeing that change, which makes me happy. Mm-hmm. Because it is very interesting and important. Um, yeah. um, and the the last thing that that I'll say about um, kind of Magneto and um, you know the Holocaust is it wasn't just used as a tragic backstory. Uh, right. It absolutely was used as that, but it was also used as. Um, a kind of recontextualizing element for Magneto's radicalism. Like, why Magneto thinks that there's this inescapable conflict between mutants and humans um, is that, like, he, you know, has seen a genocide of a racial minority before. So, you know, believing that it could happen again uh, is is not, you know, out of nowhere. Um, but it also, you know, is used to sort of situate him in global politics. And this is where we get, um, likewise, in uh, X-Men 150, this extended multi-page sequence where uh, Magneto, you know, he's... He's doing his Magneto thing, right? 
he's living on, you know, Octopusheim. Um, Yay! You know, basically, like, Relea, uh, from the Lovecraft mythos. And he's built a volcano machine. And he's threatening the nations of the world into, like, ceding political power to him. Right? So far, that's that's pretty classic villain stuff. Um, you know, it's, it's different from, like, Count Nefaria trying to ransom Washington, D.C., only in that, like, he's <laughs> not asking for money, he's asking for political power. But there's then this multi-page sequence in which, like... Magneto is talking directly to very, very clearly identifiable um, portraits of, like, Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, Leonard Brezhnev, Zhuen Lai, talking about nuclear disarmament. And, yeah, you know, saying that, like, you know he's he's going to enforce nuclear disarmament uh, because nuclear weapons are a threat to mutant kind. Like he doesn't care if humans kill each other, uh, but he does care if if mutants die in the backlash. And then he later has this conversation with Scott Summers, where he's basically saying, you know, we're going to redirect all forms of military spending into wiping out hunger, disease, and poverty. And, you know, it's this, you know, image of uh, Magneto as, like, a would-be uh, enlightened tyrant. Mm-hmm. That, you know, he's someone who, like, and and this is what I think Claremont um, kind of struck on um, perfectly, is that, like, his... His ends have to be laudable. Um, like, what he wants has to be a good thing. It's his means that are extreme and flawed and allow the the X-Men to fight Magneto and to, you know, provide a, a, a critique of Magneto. Um, uh, because, you know... With with that kind of aspect of, like, you know, he thinks of himself as this kind of, um, you know, enlightened despot, um, that, he's, you know, becomes the touchstone for his character. Like, that carries through into all the stuff from the late 80s and 90s about Genosha and the, like... Uh, the use of Genosha as like an allegory for uh, apartheid South Africa and then post-apartheid South Africa, um, you know, that's there in Grant Morrison's um, New X-Men run. And I would argue, you know, that's also there in the like post-Hoxpox status quo in the X line where, you know, Magneto is, um, at least for the moment, uh, I, you know, none of us have, have gotten a chance to read 
uh, Karen Gillan's uh, Immortal X-Men, which I'm really looking forward to. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, I almost said something was a spoiler, which is dumb as hell. Good news, everyone. He will be coming on the podcast at some point in the nearish future to talk about the series once it comes out. I, Excellent. I'm ecstatic. Yes. I'm, I'm looking forward to that episode. Um, so, you know, at least for the moment, Magneto is an unelected uh, oligarch. You know, the, the Quiet Council are a ruling aristocracy of Krakoa. You know, they, they choose their own membership. Um, they seem to be kind of a weird mix of, like, villains who they want to keep their eye on and, you know, people who were close to Charles Xavier. Um, and, uh, you know, they're running this country despite never having, you know, received any kind of mandate for government from the people of Krakoa. Like, the X-Men are elected. They, they... You know, for a superhero team, there is a, a mutant psychic democracy. But for the actual government of a nation-state, um, you know, Magneto uh, is one of a few, you know, unelected aristocrats. And, you know, this kind of gets, gets me to, to something that I didn't... Um, didn't have time to write about in in my people's history, but it's kind of been on my mind, which is mm -hmm. one of the things that is true of Magneto is that, like, you know, he's got this explicit political endgame. Like, his, his, you know, for a long time, his aim is a mutant homeland. Um, and... Whenever he creates a mutant homeland, it's always a dictatorship. Yeah. Um, you know, this is true whether we're talking Silver Age Magneto or Bronze Age Magneto uh, or, you know, arguably Hox Pox Magneto. Um, and part of that is, you know, if you think about... If we take his character backstory as, like historically consistent. Um, he's not someone who's ever had experience with, much experience with living in a democratic polity. Mm. You know, he grew up in Poland in uh, the late 30s. You know, he survived, um, you know, the... Nazi occupation of Poland. He spent, you know, the the only time that I can really think of where he existed in a country that had elections at all uh, is the, like, brief time that he spent in Israel. Um, but, like, you know, by that point, his, his sort of political ideology is, like, formed. And so he he's always sort of thought of um, politics as like the rule by the strong, you know, implicitly. Like 
you know, mm-hmm. with himself as the strong man, as the person in control. Um, and I think, like, partially we can sort of see this as, um, you know, a reaction to a childhood with where he was completely powerless and, you know, at the mercy of, you know, inhuman political forces beyond his his wildest imaginings. Um, but, you know, regardless, he always, you know, thinks of himself as, like, the indispensable man. Yeah. A sort of, uh, great man theories of history and politics where, like, a single individual is seen as indispensable for... Uh, you know, statesmanship or good political outcomes. It's it's very much a sort of a top-down view of history as opposed to a bottom-up view of history. Yeah. Um, and it's, and, like, really overlooks incredibly essential social forces um, in favor for uh, an elitist perspective that is a more neatly tied up narrative. I, I just think it's incredibly lazy and politically backward and incredibly popular. Yeah. Um, you know, witness, uh, you know, Boris Johnson's writing about Winston Churchill, um, to pick just one random, uh, contemporary example. Um, but like Magneto, does seem to think of himself as an indispensable figure, as, like, the person who uh, Krakoa relies upon. Uh, and, you know, we see this, um, you know, pretty early in uh, Hickman's run on X-Men, where, you know, Magneto is is talking to mutant children and saying... You know, you don't need to be afraid. You know, let the outside world fear, for I am Magneto. And, you know, presenting himself as this figure, this sort of generational figure, as the, like, the man who goes to war so that the next generation will never have to. Um, Yeah. And, you know, since then, he's been at the, like, the trinity of, you know, himself, Charles Xavier, and Moira X, um, who have been, like, secretly in the background, uh, you know, bringing Krakoa about and then guiding it behind the scenes. Like, you know, the the secret cabal within the Quiet Council. Um, mm. You know, doing that um, that classic thing of, like, establishing you know, a common political line, uh, bef- you know, in the pre-meeting, before the meeting, uh, so that they can guide the agenda, um, you know, that uh, that people who've been involved in activism and are, are you know, familiar with, you know, how cadre politics works uh, are only too familiar with. So one of the things that's going to be <laughs> really interesting to see in... Um, both Immortal X-Men and X-Men Red, uh, and, um, you know, this, I don't know whether this is a spoiler, because it's in the solicits. 
I think that's fine to share. Go ahead. Okay. Um, is that, like, he's going to be stepping away from the Quiet Council. And he's, like, pivoting to doing stuff with Storm on Arako, which, like, I'm I'm really looking forward to. Uh, I'm sure it's going to be super interesting because Al Ewing is a great writer. Um, but it's going to be interesting, like, seeing what it's like for Magneto to step away and kind of give up hands-on control over the Krokoan experiment. Yeah, that would be huge... Hugely different. Um, yeah, I, I think it'll be interesting to see what comes in there. I would also just say, like, from a practical storytelling standpoint, the reason comics are so full of either people who are actual benevolent dictators, like Black Panther, or people who would like to be benevolent dictators or see themselves as such but aren't, like Doctor Doom, Yeah, is because writing about an actual electoral political conflict is a lot of work that would take space away from the other kinds of storytelling that is required in superhero comics but i think it's a shame because i really do want to read about an actual (laughs) i do want to read about the elections in this systems like i i i think it could be great i'd be worried because i think most people don't have the knowledge base about politics to do a competent job of it but some people do you know yeah that's that's why i'm i'm looking forward to to kieran gillen's immortal x-men is that, that is I think true. he's gonna ha- he's gonna be great at writing about the Quiet Council, and you know finding ways to um, to make uh, political you know conspiracy and machination work in a superhero comic. Uh, mm-hmm. You know that yeah. can be hard. Like you know there's a lot of good stuff in the recently finished uh, X-Men event, The Trial of Magneto. But, like, you could really see the, the, like, the seams in that event where, like, all of a sudden, you know, the the actual Trial of Magneto would pause and so that they could have a kaiju fight. Yeah. Um, because I think it's a little bit easier in superhero comics to have a kaiju fight than... Mm-hmm to do, like, you know, uh, a legal thriller. And I'm excited, like, that there was an X-Men election, like, as a concept of even having an election. But um, it's amazing to me, like, you know, if we were on Krakoa, we would have divorced elections a long time ago. Yeah. (laughs) You know? Um, And, uh... Yeah, yeah, I mean, there's, there's so much interesting stuff that can be done with, like... A, a new kind of polity, like using the uh-huh. the whole sci-fi conceit of the X-Men to like imagine like what what are politics like when there is enough telepaths to turn I mean to effectively turn everyone into a hive mind for political deliberations. Like the the X-Men voting process, you know, doesn't take place on a day uh, or a weekend or a long weekend or, you know, however long, you know, 
uh, a voting period should be, it takes place in an instant because, like, Jean Grey can just link everyone's minds together and, like, you know, subjectively everyone works out their problems while, you know, a second passes. That's a really cool, like, setup for political sci-fi. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's possible right now, finally. It's amazing. Yeah, and, you know, given that, like, the whole, you know, and and some of the best stuff to come out of the X-Line since Hawksbox has been about, like, imagining new forms of, of community and new forms of nationhood and Krakoa as a place that, like, self-consciously is trying to find, like, new enough and, uh, you know, distinctively mutant ways of doing things, whether that's, you know, education, whether that's, you know, um, you know, economy, you know, whatever it is, you know, you can't leave politics out of that because, Mm -hmm. you know, people are always making group decisions and, why shouldn't there be distinctively mutant ways of making group decisions? And, like, there have always been political factions within mutantdom, even within the X-Men themselves. Yeah. And, like, one of the things that's so interesting about the Krakoan amnesty is that, like, now the range of mutant opinion includes everybody... So, like, Celine Gallio is, you know, <laughs> you know, tens of thousands of years old, you know, vampiric sorceress, you know, has a political voice on Krakoa and is going to have, you know, we saw this a little bit in, in X-Corp, is going to have, like, very different thoughts about, like, how things should be run than, you know... Um. Uh. Uh. Well, to to give Storm. another example, yeah. <laughs> then then Storm, uh, who yeah. is like, you know, engaging in her own political project on Araco. Hmm. For those who are like, who the fuck is Celine Gallio? May I recommend the very enjoyable Celine episode of Cerebrocast? Yeah, but yeah, that was um, one of the better ones. Yeah. Um. But so seeing these people have to work their stuff out is exciting. And, and I want, you know, and to understand factions and different cadres and how people are going to organize with each other and then looking at how people will vote in response to it. Uh, it is about time. Is there anything yeah, else that's... we want to cover about this? I'm like a little, cause I, you know, there's uh, like so many amazing columns you've done. Um, over the time, but probably don't yeah. Um, I just them. wanted to focus on the the Magneto ones for now. We can always come back and do another one of these. Talk about Captain America stuff, or yeah. And Lord knows, you you have written lots of really great stuff about Cap and 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 and, uh, and Falcon in the column. I highly recommend. I I feel like I've referenced um, what is it. Um, Cap and Falcon on the Island of Forbidden Love. Yes. Essay, like, in multiple places. It's so it's so good. Um, 
you know, those weren't stories I'd read before. And then I was like, this is really interesting slash really gay. And the art is really nice. Thank you for putting it to my attention. Yeah. Um, and I'm, I need to get back to doing some, some Captain America people's history. Uh, Cause th- where I left it off, like I haven't written yet about the snap Wilson yeah. uh, period. And like, there is so much to say about like the racial politics of Marvel comics in the seventies through to like early two thousands. Well, uh, please give our listeners the like five minute version of what snap Wilson, who and what snap Wilson is. Okay. So originally um, Sam Wilson was a kind of, you know, by night, uh, you know, uh, a revolutionary superhero, you know, the defender of Harlem. Uh, and then by day, he was Sam Wilson's social worker. Um, you know, dealing with the, you know, social problems of his neighborhood, you know, with a special focus on um, uh, youth, and, uh, you know, education and employment and, and training. Um, and then, you know, after that status quo, and there were, like, a lot of really fun issues that spun out of his, like, being a social worker. Uh, it's almost, you know, I, I think of it as, like, a, a really underexplored um, secret identity. Uh, because like mm-hmm. being a, a journalist, it gives you an excuse to like be nosy with social problems that can then be turned into like superhero adventures. So there's in there's some an ways, issue. yeah. In some ways, like I kind of wish that Daredevil had been that route. Yeah. So there's an issue where um, uh, Sam Wilson, you know, as a social worker, uh, is doing investigations into like conditions in prison um which then leads to like this whole thing where uh you know secret experiments in you know turning people into werewolves um this is where <laughs> the first cap wolf comes from uh years before the 80s uh anyway Captain America was a werewolf people it's very important for you to know this yeah. Um so anyway, after a while, um uh Steve Englehart like I and I, I don't know whether like where this came from exactly, whether this was Englehart on his own or following Englehart following the the dictates of you know, editorial but there was a decision to retcon Sam Wilson as a gangster um, called Snap Wilson. And, um, you know, reveal that, like, the Red Skull had, like, in- used the cosmic cube to invent the social worker backstory out of whole cloth because he thought that like a liberal like Captain America would would fall for that which 
didn't really make sense because like okay why it's it's not like Sam Wilson wasn't you know actively thwarting the Red Skull even in his you know uh, supposed you know false memory state anyway yeah no it it basically it's it's a it's an it presupposes that the socially progressive policy is wrong and weak that's like what it's saying yeah and um you know sam wilson becomes this like much more um like angry violent um character um and that backstory stuck until the early 2000s it's so ugh. and it it's what a loss. really it's really quite bizarre because like in the 70s you can maybe see your way to sort of understanding that like maybe this is marvel doing the same kind of trend chasing that they were doing with with Luke Cage where like black exploitation was big so you know the the kind of respectable nonviolent um you know uplift kind of politics of um Sam Wilson you know doesn't quite fit with the world of black exploitation so let's give him a new tougher backstory um you can sort of see that in the 70s um but like it doesn't make sense in the context like of the 80s or the 90s or the early 2000s like there's no trend that's being chased anymore like black exploitation as uh like a film genre you know had a pretty um short shelf life um and there are some really wonderful films like in the genre that really undermine some of the racist assumptions that people have about it but there's also a lot of really shitty stuff made by white people so yeah i mean there there's a lot of good stuff to be said about black exploitation uh and a lot yeah. of good stuff have, have been written um uh about the genre and about some of its classic works like you know shaft or sweet sweet back sweet ass song um oh yeah and actually also just quick shout out to a comic that feels like people don't really remember anymore but david f walker and christ i'm forgetting the name of the artist on it did a wonderful shaft in imitation of life miniseries like i don't know seven eight years ago that i really liked mm -hmm. anyway sorry keep going um so i i i need to write about this aspect in um sam wilson's backstory because it is one of those things that happens where something gets calcified in um comics and no one is no one changes it for like 30 years um and it's like this weird kind of lacunae where i don't know what's up with that um but like we should also kind of point out you know yeah marvel's you know black representation has not always been good 
I mean, the thing that feels to me is like, it feels like it's not just a question of Marvel chasing after black exploitation stories. It feels like someone on Marvel editorial deciding that Sam Wilson being a social worker was quote unquote unrealistic and that it would be more realistic to have him be telling stories from the streets or something. I don't know. That's just how it sounds yeah. to me. I mean, and that's racist. <laughs> I, yeah. I mean, I haven't done a deep dive into these, into the sort of scene where it started. Um, yeah. In a, a kind of like well meaning white dude wanting to be hip. And not really thinking through the broader implications. Um, and then the the bigger question is just why did it stick around so long? And what were the particular forces of... And, you know, because it stuck around through many different runs of Captain America and Avengers comics. Um, you know, and many different writers and creative teams and editorial teams and, um, you know, those kind of lacunae are always interesting to me. Totally. Totally. And I, I really look forward to reading it and appreciate all the detailed research and analysis that you do like using your perspective as an actual real life historian and bringing that to bear to our comics um so thank you and to our listeners i hopefully this whet your appetite to go and check out the series it's all at graphic policy which is the home website for this podcast as well um Stephen, do you have anything else you want to direct our listeners to go check out Uh, no, just, you know, I write about, um, the intersection of, uh, comics history and pop culture and politics at Graphic Policy. Check out my stuff. Uh, I also write at, uh, Race for the Iron Throne. I'm always happy to, uh, Tumblr.com. I'm always happy to answer questions about comic books, um... There. But yeah, like if you're into a Song of Ice and Fire stuff, guys, the George R.R. R. Martin series, like obviously Stephen is your dude. So Yeah, I do that stuff there. too. It's yeah, it's really exciting. And as for me, I'm on Twitter a little bit too much at E L A N A underscore Brooklyn. That's E L A N A underscore Brooklyn. Um we have coverage of Peacemaker coming up with some really exciting guests. Coverage of Young Justice Season 4 coming up. And um, some interesting writers as well coming your way. So as we like to say, keep it geeky. <laughs> <laughs>